Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Namaste, yogis. This is Andrew Seeley here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. Are you ready to be immersed in the wisdom of a teacher's teacher? Get ready to dive deep into the beautiful wisdom of Annie Carpenter. Annie found yoga at a time in her life when she knew her search for greater depth was limited only by her fear to go beyond her comfort zone. As her practice deepened, her knowledge of yoga philosophy and alignment has inspired the movement of many well-known yogis, like Patrick Beach and Tiffany Russo. Listen close as Annie takes us to a place of better understanding through embodiment and sheds the light on how we can cultivate the longevity of our practice while continuing to press the body and mind to newfound heights. We're not here to serve yoga. It's here to help us live beautiful, creative, vital, and kind existences, not the reverse. Find clarity on the path as we grow and glow. Tap into the wisdom of Annie Carpenter's smart flow on this episode of the Yoga Revealed Podcast. Welcome to Yoga Revealed Podcast. It is such a pleasure to be here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, sitting across from two amazing people, Andrew Seely and the one and only Annie Carpenter. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> yeah, it brings us great joy to have you here today. Oh, and it's so my pleasure. Especially after taking that amazing twists workshop at the Hanuman Festival. We're feeling all happy and loose. Spines are nice and aligned. Cleanse and long. And, long. and detoxed. <laughs> <laughs> and Good. yeah, we have so much to talk about because I feel that you have influenced so many yoga teachers. Mm-hmm. And you have really been a huge what I would call a trailblazer in the yoga industry. Mm. And I feel that 
revealing your path and revealing the longevity of your practice Mm -hmm. to the listeners at home is just going to be absolutely wonderful. So thank you for being here today. I'm really Mm -hmm. delighted. Thank you. So we really like to start with the synopsis of where you came from, how yoga found you, mm. and your, a little bit of your early life. Yeah. So I grew up in a what was then a small town in Virginia. Now it's probably half a million people. It's a little town called Newport News. Although we say, Newport News, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you get me talking to my sisters, that accent comes right back. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, full oh, on, y'all. I am a true Southern girl. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Little Southern Belle, you. And I make really good cornbread. <laughs> and good greens. <laughs> That's the way. Um, but I, as a young kid, um, just was always into sports and movement, and I found dance pretty young and got pretty serious about studying dance um, fairly young. Um, and also, it was, you know, the early 70s, late 60s, and so I also found drugs. <laughs> Um, and so my parents sent me to um, a place to try to get me using drugs less. Which drugs? Um, well, marijuana was regular, but uh, I had some really nice experiences with LSD. Mm. And actually, I feel really lucky. I had really transformed. Like, I think the first time I understood that time was a construct that we needed, mm. as opposed to a reality, mm-hmm. was in a, a really amazing trip when I was 15. Um, wow. So, but it's not the kind of thing you want to do a lot of, especially when you're a teenager. Definitely, yeah. Um, you know, a 90-pound teenager. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really great. And they sent me to a place and I had therapy, but we did yoga. Wow. <laughs> As On Thursday afternoons, we did yoga. And I loved it. And I felt not high afterwards, but I felt embodied and safe and deeply aware mm-hmm. in similar ways that I think the reasons what I was looking for from drugs yeah and so it really worked way more than the psychotherapy (laughs) you know it's like it was amazing it was deeply healing for me and ever since then I have always done yoga certainly there have been weeks where I haven't done practice every day Mm -hmm. I mean I was 16 17 years old but uh, yoga has been a part of my life and I have known that it was for me the most grounding and healing thing I could do since I was a teenager Wow, that's a beautiful entry point yeah. in defining yoga. And I think that I would not be alive. Hmm. You know, I think I would have gone down a whole other path that would not have been pretty. Yeah, that's really wild that LSD was that accessible. I mean, I guess that's like during the days of like Tim Leary and Ram Dass and all those guys. A little so. bit after, but yeah. Ah. We were all, I mean, not all, but there was a lot of us experimenting with those drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, so... With this first budding of yoga, were you practicing pretty regularly? And when did it go from using it as a therapy to actually realizing that you could progress in yoga in such a way that you could not only heal your body, but really start to use it as a practice to open up your mind? You know, much later. Like, it really was just this refuge, sort of sanctuary for me. Mm -hmm. As a teenager, it was really safe. I love the people who did yoga. I mean, you know, community is a big piece of why we do yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, But what happened is I became a dancer, and I moved to New York, and I was studying and practicing and teaching, eventually performing with the Martha Graham Company in New York. And that was intense. And I am actually a very introverted, shy person. I mean, I know it doesn't look like that when I'm teaching. I can bring it in front of large crowds. But 
um, I then need to go home and be alone and sit and I just am that person. You know, yeah. it, it's fatiguing to me. And so the yoga has always been sort of replenishing in that way. Mm. Um, and so in that com- very competitive world of New York dance, I would finish, I'd live downtown, the studio was uptown, and I would take the train home and I would go right to the Integral Yoga Institute almost every night. Mm. The Swami Satchananda's place. Mm. And that kind of yoga, I don't know if you know that, it's very soft, very quiet. It's much more about meditation and breathing and the satsang, the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because hello, I was dancing all day. It's not like I needed to do ashtanga. You know? <laughs> so, um, so it, again, was a refuge, but those people were big, deep meditators. Yeah. And so then I learned that whole other side of how you can access, let's, let's use that word, access different levels of the mind um, simply by sitting. And it wasn't all about the physical practice, which helped me feel safe in my body. It was also, oh, there's lots of places I can go, you know, on the, on the mental planes. Mm. And so that was new for me. And so, mm. I, but again, it was, it was my rescue place. It was mm. my refuge outside of that. I mean, I, w- I loved the dance world. I feel so lucky I got to work with Martha Graham and all of that and travel the world. But if I hadn't, again, again if I hadn't had the yoga, I don't think I would have made it. Do you feel that in the inner form of meditation that you began to cultivate, you were able to tap into part of your past life with the psychedelic experience and integrate such a bliss and such a sense of awe? Absolutely. And I have to say, one of the reasons I think I was drawn to Martha Graham as opposed to, say, Mars Cunningham or any of the other great yogi, uh, great te- dance teachers of that day was because her whole expression was the physical body was a means to find out the inner truth and express the inner truth. It, you know, it was like, if, if you weren't being completely authentic and completely real, she wouldn't have you. She, I remember one, there was one woman who was exceedingly talented. She called her the ice goddess. Oh. <laughs> one day, you can cut this if you want. One day she said, I don't want any virgins. Oh. I want people who have experience with love and life. Full on. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, I was looking, I was looking for authenticity, yeah. you know, in any corner I could find it. Mm. And so I, as long as Hachananda was around and that man is just, just light. I mean, you can see right through him. And also funny. So you got to actually Oh practice. yeah, he was around. Oh my goodness. He didn't teach classes, but he gave talks. Yeah. Yeah. Lectures. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. From great master to great master. Well, I'm not there yet. <laughs> Thank you for that, though. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. So, when did you begin to find, uh, as we know, Ashtanga Yoga into mm-hmm. integrating what I believe you're calling smart flow? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Can you tell us that timeline? Yeah, so I um, danced well into my 20s, into the 30s, and then I did teach at university for a little while in the dance department. I didn't like it. Mm. You know, it was, how do you grade people on art? Mm. You know, that whole thing just didn't work for me. Um, And at that time, I stopped performing or stopped performing regularly. And so my body was kind of hungry for more physicality. Mm -hmm. So the sweetness of integral yoga and all of that quiet, interiorizing work, um, I needed some physicality. Yeah. So um, I started, I found Ashtanga. And uh, within... Gosh, a year. I took a sabbatical from the university, and I went to Santa Monica, California. Yeah. (laughs) 
and and a friend of mine said, "Oh, you got to go to Chuck Miller. You got to practice with Chuck." Mm. And um, so I, I spent the summer there, and then Monty said, "Well, why don't you stay and teach here?" So, so I called the university. I said, "I'm not coming back." So you literally started right then at Yoga Works. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. I mean, well, well you know, it was interesting. I mean, I had been doing yoga so long, and at that point, I was doing more Iyengar because mm-hmm. um, that's what was available. And the students on Friday afternoons, so this is in the dance department, and these kids performed a lot. Mm. And they're, you know, 19, 20, maybe 21 years old. And by Friday afternoon, they're exhausted, and they have to perform all weekend. And so the advanced modern dance class was Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock. It's my, you know, I was teaching it. And very often they'd come in the room, and the pianist would be there waiting for me. And they'd say, Annie, Annie, can, can, can we do yoga instead? Mm. So I started teaching yoga before I was trained. You know, because they knew I was a yogi, and mm-hmm. and they were exhausted. And I'd look at the pianist, and I'd say, Dan, take the day off. <laughs> and I would give them yoga, and they needed it. And it was it was physical, but it wasn't crazy strong, because it was really just, let's go inside, let's get mm-hmm. quiet. And we would finish with a long nidra, you know, guided relaxation, like we did today. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, again... I knew it had saved me as a dancer, so it was only right that I gave them yoga when I knew they needed it. So then I thought, okay, you better learn how to teach this stuff. <laughs> so then I seriously did you, studied. Did you do your teacher training with Monty? With Monty and Lisa Walford. Wow. And back then, teacher training was six weeks long, six weekends. So there was no yoga lines, there was no 200 hours, you know, it was like, just... Oh, you're, you're good, you're good, you got it. You can teach some people. <laughs> and within, you know, two months I was teaching there. So... Um, yeah, and it was a really easy transition. I just, like, immediately I had as much work as I needed between classes and privates. It was, like, such a no-brainer. And I was late 30s, mm. you know. It was, it was kind of like a leap of faith, mm. you know, to just say, yeah, I think I'll move to California to teach yoga. Because <laughs> yoga wasn't, you know, wasn't a career like it is now. That's what I was going to say is that I feel like at that time it, it was just budding. So you, you were able to pick up classes and things started picking up pretty quickly for well, you? Well, I mean, the good news on that is there wasn't much competition. Mm, I mean, nobody too. was thinking, I want to be a yoga teacher. Mm. You know, it was just... And with all my years of working with bodies moving in space, I had studied anatomy and kinesiology. And, you know, I just had this... You know, my saddlebag was full of all the right tools. Mm-hmm. I just needed to be in the practice full t- full time. And then be with people who are great teachers and it was just an easy slide in you know Mm. I really did I just slid right into it Mm. so I was lucky that way I mean the timing was right and my history and my background was right so yeah I feel I feel blessed you've really seen a whole shift oh boy oh my goodness yeah I mean you know I have teachers who've been around longer than me certainly but I've seen a lot of changes (laughs) yeah which I'm, you know, the good bottom line, whatever you might say about some of the directions yoga's taken that we might not love, the bottom line is, look at how many people are practicing yoga. Yes. So that's the, that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. There are so many people practicing yoga in so many different ways. How can mm-hmm. we not celebrate that? I applaud you for that. Because honestly, it's very interesting to listen to the different opinions about the openness of yoga now Mm -hmm. and the accessibility of yoga and I feel that now is the most beautiful time because we're at a pivotal stage where 
we can choose to be excited about people learning yoga in gyms and in places that are quote-unquote unconventional Mm -hmm. but yoga is unconventional and yoga is meant to be everywhere that's right I, I, I feel that, you know, and I feel that the more people that have yoga accessible to them in whatever form it is, the more that they'll gain the interest to learn the most pure form of yoga, which is, I think, the yoga that's right for them. For each person in this moment. Mm. I mean, you know, the first word in Patanjali Sutras is atta. Atta yoga nushasanam. Atta is now. And the yoga that's absolutely right for me today is very different from the yoga I was doing 40 years ago. It's very different from the yoga I was doing two weeks ago. You know, and if mm. we can't embrace that and if we can't figure out whatever it is that needs to be incorporated or let go of mm. in terms of, you know, I'm pretty classically based. I'm a little bit old school as a teacher goes. But even, even I, at least in my own practice from time to time, I have to let go of stuff that just doesn't make sense. For you. For me. And, and also for my students, mm. you know, yes, I know this is the way it's done, but you know what, whether it's body proportion, whether it's injury, whether it's, gee, I've got all this arthritis in this joint that I didn't used to have, whatever it is, you know, I mean, one of my great, great friends, and I think a great, great teacher of our time is Richard Rosen. Mm. You should talk to him. Um, mm. And he is, has had Parkinson's for over 15 years. Uh-huh. And I'd say one of the great yogis, and he hardly does asana practice in the sense that you and I are doing asana practice today. Mm-hmm. Um, a great yogi. Wow. So this is, this is the inspiration for us, is to see people as, whether it's sickness or disease or just aging, or, or let's look at women when they have you know twins who are three months old. What's your yoga practice going to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, we let let's embrace what. How can yoga serve me in this moment? We're not here to serve yoga. It's here to help us live beautiful, creative, vital, and kind existences, not the reverse. That's it. Mm-hmm. What I shut you up? <laughs> that was very beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> Those are like those those points where you're like, hmm, you you just sit in it and you let it soak. Um, So from the stage of beginning to teach yoga, when did you decide that you were going to take the knowledge that you had learned and then aggregate it into what you now teach as SmartFlow? Good question. So I did teach um, at Yoga Works and then, you know, that's one of those studios like many these days that kind of became, I forget the right word, corporatized or franchised or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, and I was leading the, t- when Monty left, I started, I took a role in leading the teacher trainings and did that for, gosh, I don't know, seven or eight years. Um, and as, as there were more and more studios and more and more trainings that needed to happen, the training itself had to get, in a word, codified. And because they needed lots of people to teach them. So I trained lots of people to lead the trainings as well as, you know, the students themselves. And as I got more codified, to me, the thing that had to be taken out was the mystery and the question and the inquiry. And I think that's a little bit of what we're talking about is it needs to suit each person. And 
if you're very young in yoga and you're trying to teach and you haven't had time in it and watch it evolve in your own on your own mat on your own cushion then what you need is formulaic yoga mm -hmm. and and I get that and it works like what you and I were talking about earlier it works when you go you know that you're going to get a class that sort of feels like this no matter who the teacher is no matter what time of day it is and I totally respect that but it wasn't me mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. I'd been practicing for years and I loved the inquiry and I wanted students to find their own way and I was comfortable enough with questions that I didn't need a formula. Mm. I wanted it to be about the process of inquiry. Mm. Um, still practicing classical yoga in the sense of what's come down through the years via, you know, well, Iyengar and, and Patabi Joyce. Anyway, you know, the whole lineage that we all know. But... I wanted the inquiry, and I wanted it to have a flow that was authentic to each person. And because I'm a bit of an anatomy geek, mm -hmm. and I understand the structure crazy well, it had to be informed by that so that people would stay safe. And that from the beginning, it was therapeutic, not to fix an injury, but prevention. Mm -hmm. That our joints were safe and spacious right from the beginning. So as those things became clearer to me and they didn't fit into where I had been, I just said, you know, love you, thank you, but I have to go. Mm. And at that moment, I started writing all my manuals and creating trainings. Now I have hundreds of hours of trainings and, and hundreds of students who have come through over the years um, doing awesome. smart flow. Yeah. What were the tools that helped you gain more knowledge in anatomy? Over the last many years? Um, over the, So I did do, I did a pre-med anatomy course when I was in college. For some reason, I've just always been interested. But you know what it has been is I'm that teacher who when someone says this hurts, I go home and look it up and read all about it and study it. And I go back to that student and I say, okay, let's try this. Oh, that's not right. Let's try that. And so just how many years have I been teaching? How many students have come through? So I've learned about lots and lots of issues and problems and proportional stuff and hyperextended elbows and torn rotator cuffs and all the rest of it just because I've had to. It's really hands-on. Just hands-on, yeah. I mean, I did awesome. have the background, but yes. then I just keep... I mean, every month I learn about a new condition. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a little geeky side. So mm. for me, it is fun. That's Good. awesome. Yeah. I, I'm from a, I come from a microbiome background so I'm really into anatomy as well oh and yay yeah I really enjoy classes like yours but also classes you know like Richard Freeman's where he just goes into so much depth about the diaphragm and the breathing and that kind of stuff so how do you find the balance between the anatomy and more of the anatomical knowledge and the spiritual side mm. Mm. um to me that's a no-brainer and I know that's it, it, that seems like a giant leap to some people. There's sort of your anatomy structure, you know, correct, geeky, what should we call it? Someone said, you're like the police. Strict. Strict um, side. And then there's the sort of spiritual sweet side. And for me, it's all about the mindfulness. My feeling is it's all of the practices of yoga will take us out of, literally, away from 
in a sense, the soul, the heart, to teach us how to focus, how to pay attention. Because in our world, we don't know how to pay attention. We get excited about this and the other and this and that and you and, you know, our lives are so full. And I love that. But they're everywhere. And so we need, I mean, a lot of the training in yoga and, and meditation is to teach people how to stay, keep their minds to be still in one place, to pay attention. And for me, alignment is one of the great ways to do that. And of course, I grew up in my body, you know, dancing and all mm-hmm. the rest. I was a hockey player, all of it. Um, and so one of the great ways to focus the mind is to feel the inner edge of the right big toe. Uh-huh. grounding into the earth and then move your attention to the inner arch and feel it drawing up towards your inner ankle and then ground the front of that inner heel and if people can stay with me they're training their mind to be steady to be mindful Yes. and eventually whether it's alignment physical postures or whether it's watching the breath right nostril, left nostril or whether it's watching the mind jump from thought to thought, eventually we have to let go of the technique and be with the pure spirit. But very few people can do that without training the mind to pay attention. And because most people come to yoga because they think it's all a physical practice, if you can get them in because they love to move and they love to work hard and sweat, and then you get them to train their mind via alignment points, you're halfway to getting them to sit on that cushion and meditate. So for me, it's not a separate tool. It's the beginning of what yoga's about. So you really use the teachings of the asana as literally the, the second limb to get them into the pranayama, then to get them into... It's dharana. Yeah, yeah. the mm-hmm. focus, the full focus. Mm-hmm. That's mindful teaching. That's right. That's the best way. That's my way. There are lots of ways to do it. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're so excited for the continuing of Hanuman Festival to see how you transmit pranayama. Yeah. I, I kind of way in love with pranayama. <laughs> <laughs> what are some, you know, I've heard that Guruji would only teach pranayama to those who were X amount further into the second series, a third towards series? Towards the end of second series. Second series? Yeah. So, you know, and I, I think that it's just such, so important to learn how to breathe to wake up into our breath and to learn the diaphragm what are some some key tips that you would offer newcomers to yoga on how to learn the breath Mm -hmm. you know i would say that while i'm certainly informed by my years of uh, ashtanga yoga a la patabi joyce um my first breath teacher was Satchinanda back at integral yoga and we had a whole section of every practice was just breathing and we did the eye circles. I mean, you know, it was pretty <laughs> esoteric stuff. But we, you know, I learned, we did Nadi Shodana, we did um, Dirga breath, which is the three-part breathing in a very particular way. Um, I think people should breathe. And whether that means ujjayi with the movement or whether that means let's lie on our backs and see if we can feel where the breath moves in our body or whether that means let's sit and do, you know, different types of pranayama that actually shift the mind and the, and the energy system. Um, they're all great, mm. but I think if we could get people who come to yoga thinking it's a physical practice to do even a little bit of breathing at the beginning and the end, right from right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And whether that's inhale, 
pause, exhale, pause. I mean, that simple, knowing that there is a cycle of breath and that there's pausing in between, that they have choices, that even though it's, a, it's something that we do without having to think about it, we can control it. A, AKA, we have choice. We can choose to either breathe slowly and deeply and mindfully. We can choose to be kind. You know, it's like all these ways of, of saying, oh, I can do it this way or I can do it that way. Oh, look at that big breath. Oh, look at that shallow breath. Without being judgmental is the beginning of teaching us that we can be different to ourselves and to the people around us. It's way easier to feel that for me in the, in the breath process than it is in trikonasana, than it is when I'm mad at my partner and I'm cranky and tired. <laughs> you know, I'm hungry. That's, and hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. You know, it's like that place when I realize there's something that's happening without me thinking about it, that I still have choice there, that I can choose to pause and then breathe. Mm-hmm. That is just the greatest teaching. And that the, the best breath we can take is when the, it's a complete exhale. And what are we learning from that? We're learning to let go completely, mm-hmm. to surrender. And, and then I didn't die. <laughs> no, people are afraid. If you've yeah. never taught pranayama, it's scary. Retention. Death comes up. Yeah, that's what, that's what it's all about. That, yeah. that we call it the turiya, the fourth. Turiya. The fourth is the pause after exhale. So right, inhale is one, pause mm-hmm. is two, exhale is three. The fourth. Turiya means the fourth. And the old yogis, like Hatha Yoga Pradipika and before, they say the only time you can get to true transformation is in the fourth. But that's the time when you go, oh my God, will I ever breathe again? You're touching. You're touching death. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I I have to ask then, in those times of deep meditation where, where I felt like I've reached a place of transcendent thought or or transcended beyond thought really and had like a clear mind and been able to what I would say kind of reach a space of a feeling almost like effervescent like fully bubbly but not really feeling my body but almost like an outer body experience not not something that I could really explain I guess in words something that you feel the only time that I've been able to reach those places have been in nature and in places where I've been breathing to the point where my exhales are so long mm-hmm. and then my holds are so long that I almost forget how how I'm breathing. Again. Or that or that you need to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, you're lucky. Um, I mean, because a lot of people don't get that till much later. Um, I have to share this story. So when I had first moved to New York, so I don't know, 20 maybe, and there was a little studio in Brooklyn. And this is when Brooklyn was like not where you wanted to be. Oh. <laughs> um, and it was, it was a funny studio. I can't remember the name of it. You had to, you went in, we did breathing and sitting, then we did asana, then you did a cold shower. Everybody had to take a cold shower. Mm. And then you came back and we lied down and I, it was some guided nidra thing. And I would have this out-of-body experience all the time. Here I am, 19, 20 years old, floating around. And one time I went so far 
I got scared and I started shaking. I, you, I'm sure you've had spontaneous shaking mm-hmm. in your body. Um, I think it was a Kundalini thing. And I, luckily I was, um, I don't know, courageous enough to ask the teacher. I said, look, because I didn't know if anybody else was going around flying, you know, like I was. And he was so great. He says, oh, Annie, did you forget your cord? That's what he said. <laughs> he treated me like a little five-year-old, but it was just what I needed because I was like, woo you know. And he says, we all have a little cord. A lot of people, it's gold. That's what he said to me. He says, it's attached at your heart, and it goes out through the crown of your head. And when you go, you can go as far as you want, but you'll always have that cord. And when you feel like you've gone far enough and you want to come back, you just tug on that cord, and you'll land right in your heart. Mm. How sweet is that? I learned that when I was 20. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And so, you know, when I'm able to be quiet and still enough and feel that the body is just a lump of clay here, you know, and the the spirit is free, um, which doesn't happen often enough, I have to say. Mm. But I feel like I have the freedom to do that thanks to that sweet little, maybe silly, but sweet lesson. Yeah, we're all crying here. Um, (laughs) That this man taught me when I was a kid. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And I think we need that because, you know, it does feel like you could just keep going and never come back. Um, And while that's lovely, we live in this world for a reason. Yes. And and we want to share this. Purpose. With our people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, in, in the conversation of retention and uh, commenting on death, what, what is your experience and what is your relationship to death within yoga? You know, I think, I think every spiritual tradition, <laughs> I hope every spiritual tradition has as one of its meditations, whether that's prayer or chant or, or hymns or whatever, you know, the, the medium is, doesn't even matter. But I think that in all traditions when you're ready to sit and be in relationship with your last breath is one of the most powerful things we can do. Um, And of course it will bring anxiety. Of course it will bring excitement because I think on some level, at least at a certain point in our lives, it's exciting to wonder what comes next, you know, and what would it be like to not be burdened with this clay vessel that I'm in? (laughs) I mean, that's, I, I, hey, I want to live a long life. I'm not trying to be morbid here. Totally. But it's it's an interesting, it's an entertaining, provocative idea to sit with. Um, and I think the big lesson of finding some ease, some calm, with there will be a last breath, and indeed this could be the last breath, is what it's all about, you know. Um, because what we all want to do is die well. Mm. I mean, yes, we want to live well. Mm. But, you know, don't you want that last, whether that's the last year, if you are lucky enough to know, really know you're dying, or that's the last five minutes if you got run over by a train, for example. To, don't you want those last moments to be so mindful of knowing and having known that spirit will continue in spite of this body returning to clay, mm. so to speak. I, I think that's what we're doing here. And to try to find a way to be content, calm, at peace, 
with the knowledge of the last breath, I think is the greatest gift of yoga. Mm. Mm. With that being said, as the greatest gift of yoga, how do you feel that we can better cultivate the teachings of yoga so that the potency of them is not lost? Mm. Because I feel like so often nowadays with um, the amount of social media, whether it be Facebook or YouTube or Instagram, um, the heart of yoga, the essence of the breath, the essence of the mindful practice, and even understanding that there are eight limbs is so often lost. Um, How do you feel that we as yogis can cultivate those teachings? You know, we can only teach what we understand and like we said earlier the good news is that so many people are practicing and let's just this is just any age it doesn't matter but 20 year olds want to do a lot a lot of movement and a lot a lot of play and they're going to get some of the teachings even if it's you know a sort of handstand flowy on the beach in bikinis practice whatever you know and and they're going to be drawn to, for the most part, they're going to be drawn to a teacher who's 25 or 30. Listen, when I was 30, I wasn't sitting that comfortably with the idea of my last breath. I was really interested in getting my feet lower down my back, <laughs> you know, and foot behind the head and balancing on one hand, you know? I, I, and while, you know, anyway, I, I, I don't want to put down the other... Because that simple, let's call it simple practice, you know, early limbs, is really important. And when we're younger and we have all this energy and we don't say we don't have children and sure we have a job, we have a lot of time, we have a lot of energy, what a great thing to do with that Mm. is to do fun, hard asana. It's great. Um, But the good news is that there are people, myself and, and others, you know, senior to me that I've learned from over the years who are also somehow maintaining a pretty strong physical practice. Yes. And also embracing the um, later limbs, whatever you want to call that, the more contemplative aspects of Mm. the practice. And we can only be who we are. And I think even though I'm pretty good at teaching alignment and all that stuff, I think that, I hope that what people get from me in classes is my willingness to trust the practice implicitly, and that comes from years of practice. I have utmost faith that this practice can take me wherever I need it to, and I think people feel that from me. Mm. And I think that people sense that I'm still willing to make big mistakes in an effort to continue to grow. Um, without too much fear, some fear, not too much, and that I'm willing to be completely authentic. Um, you know, I, I am. there are so many things that I'll never be as a yogi or as a human being who's a female, I'll, you know, and that's okay. And there are other things that I excel at, and I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But I can't pretend to be someone I'm not. I can't pretend to... Do you know the word grok? 
yes. to really understand things that I don't. Mm. Hopefully yet. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I will one day. And I have no business trying to teach or share or, you know, spread that message if it's not my message. And you've been in classes where it feels like a friggin' sermon out of nowhere. And you're like, wait, what do you have to teach me about this? <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, so let's learn what we can from what each person has. Mm. What each, each one of us really understands and, and can speak of from a visceral, a real place. Mm. You know? Um, we're all going to get there when we're ready. And not before. On the line of authenticity, you know, you were just always so ecstatic and so passionate. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, on this high level of enthusiasm you bring, your feet are on the ground. Mm-hmm. And it, you walk with conviction and you speak with authority of compassion and clarity. Mm-hmm. And it truly seems as you have found your voice over X amount of years teaching and practicing teaching what tips would you have for our listeners as they continue their teaching practice and their practice in finding their way, in finding their voice? Am I speaking to teachers? Yes. Uh, the only word is practice. You know, I mean, obviously we learn so much from our students, so much from our students. But I don't think we can take even that learning in if it's not um, informed by one's own practice on the mat, on the cushion. It's just, I, it, I mean, there's a million things I could say, and I can say more if you want, but it, you got to get on that mat every friggin' day, even when you don't want to, even when it doesn't feel good, even when it feels like a chore. And, and practice, because like I said in class today, no one is ever sorry that they went to yoga. <laughs> you know, I've never, ever gone, gee, I wish I had done that practice, y'all. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, you know, you loved it. We all love to practice. So it's, it's the practice that's everything. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, it's nothing is universal. Mm. Like I, I remember getting excited when I understood, you know, the deep thrill of say a, a big back print happen practice like I remember when I was going through that little middle section in second series where you get to <laughs> Kapotasana and you're like flying like a kite and and then I go to teach big backbends and I do I, I never taught Ashtanga I always taught flow of some sort and I realized gee that glory that thrill that high that I get in backbends that's not the truth for a whole lot of people Mm-hmm. even when they're well prepared you know and even when they've been practicing for 20 years for god's sake <laughs> and so what i think is the truth about yoga practice is only my truth mm-hmm. and for me to try to push my truth on anyone else you know it might as well be jonestown trying to give people kool-aid you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's just there is no one truth there is the truth that practice brings to each of us. Mm. And the only way I can understand that is by practicing and by encouraging my students to practice, not to do my practice. Mm. So we have to keep giving it back to them. And, you know, it's hard today because it's all about the numbers. You know, you have to fill the room to keep your job and to make a living... And that is just, I mean, it's all that's always been true. 
but I think there's even more pressure because there's so many people who want to teach yoga, mm-hmm. which is great. And so how can you keep your room full, keep your studio owners happy, and yet not encourage your students to be dependent on you as a teacher? And it's a very fine line. And it's a really important thing to consider. Maybe not every time you go to teach a class, but just to, to like at the end of the week to pause and say, was I empowering my students in their own practice or was I entrapping them to come back every day? Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, is that you can do both. That you can indeed have... I've had students with me for over 20 years. Mm. Maybe not every day, but who keep coming back to study with me. Um, but can I do that in such a way and convince them that, it's, that they're the expert, that it's their practice, and that while I may know a lot about this or that in yoga, it's all their own practice. Mm. And for me, the big answer of that is the use of inquiry. If you move in this way, what's the effect on that? If you hold after inhale, if you pause in the middle of an exhale, what's the result? What did you get from that? Rather than if you take four counts here and three, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not a prescription. It's a practice that evolves inquiry so that every time I practice, I learn a little bit more about who I am, not becoming a better practitioner a better asana practice or I can hold my breath longer for God's sake I learn about who I am and yes in the beginning it's how I'm living in this body and then later on it's oh that's just a body you know who I really am so with that being said we really like to offer three golden nuggets to our listeners. So these could be simple quotes that you've heard or perhaps even just little little nuggets of wisdom that will help them along their path of revealing yoga. Okay. Well, I'm going to give the quote that I gave in class yesterday, which I, I don't know if you remember, but I opened the class yesterday by saying, so there's this old quote, and I, I still I forgot to look it up. I can't remember who said it. The truth shall set you free. But there's an ending to that quote by a very famous woman, which is, so here's the whole line, the truth shall set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> that's Gloria Steinem. That's awesome. I know. And, and that's, that happens a lot, I think, in yoga practice. Because when you start to get what's really going on, you immediately run into what we call the obstacles, the kleshas. Come, mm-hmm. They're just in your face, right? And, and that's the point. The point is to bring the obstacles up so you can go, oh, look what I'm creating. Look, I'm in my own way, right? And these are the ways I'm in my own way, mm-hmm. and how can I clear that out? And so each time you seek the truth, something's going to come up and piss you off. And, and I guess my idea is that we should embrace that process. Mm. Let's let's seek the the truth and let's let's get pissed off because when we have anger we get energy. Mm-hmm. That is and true. rather than just being angry and going <laughs> at somebody, let's use that anger and say, "Okay. Hmm. There's an obstacle. 
let me find a way and maybe I just have to turn and look the other way or maybe I have to do that water thing and go around the boulder or maybe I just have to realize it's not real I made it up and move on you know whatever the solution is doesn't matter but continue to seek the truth especially when it pisses you off Mm. (laughs) so I love that Um, another thing that I've been saying a lot in classes and thinking about a lot is um, the idea of the baseline and I know you guys have a street called Baseline here. It's at the <laughs> yes, bottom of the do. mountain. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a closet bird watcher. And one of the great, great bird watchers that I know and have read his books, he always says, what you need to do, let's, you're going to love this because you guys sit. He says, find a place and go at the same time every day and just sit and watch the birds for 20 minutes and learn the baseline." And the idea is that in being in one place at the same time, that the local birds, and there's you know various, however many different populations there are, different species, there's a sort of when everything's cool and everything's peaceful, there's going to be a certain kind of chatter and a certain kind of movement in that area. When one day you're there and somebody lets their fierce dog out, or a little fox comes through, or a hawk comes through and is looking for breakfast, (laughs) then there's going to be this whole response that's not the baseline. But it's only through knowing the baseline that we know when there's something awry. Just like in our meditation practice. You sit down, you check in don't you? And whether you check in by watching your breath or you check in with mantra or you check in in front of your altar, whatever it is, as a yogi, we have to find, how am I doing today? What's up? Is there anything I need to take care of? Is there anything that's lingering from yesterday? So check the baseline and create your practice from that. Hmm. That's a really good second nugget. (laughs) (laughs) What's the third one? Don't forget to have fun. Mm. Yeah. You know what? Don't forget to have fun. I mean, sometimes, especially in workshop settings like this, and people get so serious and they're chewing on their <laughs> tongues, and and I know I've done it too, you know. Um, but you know what? If we're not having fun, we, we won't continue. You know, it's this is fun. Look how lucky we are mm-hmm. to be in this day and age practicing yoga. I mean. This is the best. We are the most blessed people I know. Mm. How do you continue to have fun? It's all fun to me. Are you kidding? She's Look about at to me. go watch Life. the Warriors right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. You mean oh, that? Wow. I, you know what? I have to get outside. Yeah. And, I, and that's one of the reasons. There's a, it looks like a goldfinch out there. Mm. Um, I, I'm really drawn to birds and I think it's, you know, cause look at me, I'm kind of a bird. You're a little bird. <laughs> I'm a little bird. <laughs> and, and I really am interested in flying, <laughs> not in planes. Um, no. <laughs> but, um, I, it, getting outside is really a, mm. a very helpful thing for me. Um, being around very large trees, mm. the redwoods, that's mm. one of my favorite things about being in the bay is that I, there's a few stands of redwoods that I get to be near often that's makes me happy well annie thank you so much for spending time with us and illuminating the wisdom of yoga that has been poured into you and that you just so unconditionally just share with everyone Mm -hmm. here at hanuman festival and everyone that you meet we're so honored to 
share time with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, indeed. And we will definitely be interviewing you again to reveal more of your knowledge to the Yoga Revealed podcast listeners because there's so much more to talk about. I look forward to it. Yeah, we might have a whole episode just on pranayama. Oh, I'd love that. That would be beautiful. I would love that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to this insightful episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. This is Alec Rubin, and Andrew and myself are elated to share these potent teachers with you. If you feel so inspired to study with Annie Carpenter, early September, she has a training going on in the LA region. The training is titled Viveka. It is Annie's advanced intensive in her smart flow methodology. This is a clear the decks and dig in deep for 12 days of training, which is as much as for your own transformation as for your own teaching. You will practice advanced asanas and pranayama and learn how to integrate many subtle aspects of yoga, including working with the pranavayus, the mahabandhas, and managing subtle energy into your practice, teaching, and life. Go to her website, anniecarpenter.com, to learn more. The Yoga Revealed podcast team is grateful for you our listeners. If you want us to interview someone, let us know. You can go comment on the Yoga Revealed Instagram page and we will respond. Let us know what questions you want to hear about regarding the yoga practice. We are in this for you. Until next time, my friends, practice mindfully and share what you find with the world. Love life and shine bright. Namaste. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.